Story One of The Miss Florence Cusack Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Bovey's Unexpected Will by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Amongst all my patients, there were none who excited my sense of curiosity like Miss Florence Cusack. I never thought of her without a sense of baffled inquiry taking possession of me, and I never visited her without the hope that some day I should get to the bottom of the mystery which surrounded her. Miss Cusack was a young and handsome woman. She possessed to all appearance superabundant health. Her energies were extraordinary, and her life completely out of the common. She lived alone in a large house in Kensington Court Gardens, kept a good staff of servants, and went much into society. Her beauty, her sprightliness, her wealth, and above all her extraordinary life caused her to be much talked about. As one glanced at this handsome girl, with her slender figure, her eyes of darkest blue, her raven black hair and clear complexion, it was almost impossible to believe that she was a power in the police courts and highly respected by every detective in Scotland Yard. I shall never forget my first visit to Miss Cusack. I had been asked by a brother doctor to see her in his absence. Strong as she was, she was subject to periodical and very acute nervous attacks. When I entered her house, she came up to me eagerly. "'Pray do not ask me too many questions, or look too curious, Dr. Lonsdale,' she said. "'I know well that my whole condition is abnormal, but believe me, I am forced to do what I do.' "'What is that?' I inquired. "'You see before you,' she continued, with emphasis, "'the most acute and, I believe, successful lady detective in the whole of London.' "'Why do you lead such an extraordinary life?' I asked. "'To me the life is fraught with the very deepest interest,' she answered. "'In any case,' and now the colour faded from her cheeks, and her eyes grew full of emotion, "'I have no choice. I am under a promise which I must fulfil. There are times, however, when I need help. Such help as you, for instance, can give me. I have never seen you before, but I like your face. If the time should ever come, will you give me your assistance?' I asked her a few more questions, and finally agreed to do what she wished. From that hour Miss Cusack and I became the staunchest friends. She constantly invited me to her house, introduced me to her friends, and gave me her confidence to a marvelous extent. On my first visit I noticed in her study two enormous brazen bulldogs. They were splendidly cast, and made a striking feature in the arrangements of the room. But I did not pay them any special attention, until she happened to mention that there was a story and a strange one, in connection with them. "'But for these dogs,' she said, "'and the mystery attached to them, "'I should not be the woman I am, "'nor would my life be set apart "'for the performance of duties, "'at once Herculean and ghastly.' "'When she said these words, "'her face once more turned pale, "'and her eyes flashed with an ominous fire. "'On a certain afternoon in November 1894, "'I received a telegram from Miss Cusack, "'asking me to put aside all other work "'and to go to her at once.' Handing my patients over to the care of my partner, I started for her house. I found her in her study, and alone. She came up to me holding a newspaper in her hand. "'Do you see this?' she asked. As she spoke, she pointed to the agony column. The following words met my eyes. "'Send more sand and charcoal dust. Core and mold ready for casting. Joshua Linklater.' I read these curious words twice, then glanced at the eager face of the young girl. "'I have been waiting for this,' she said in a tone of triumph. "'But what can it mean?' I said. "'Core and mold, ready for casting?' 
She folded up the paper and laid it deliberately on the table. "'I thought that Joshua Linklater would say something of the kind,' she continued. "'I have been watching for a similar advertisement in all the dailies for the last three weeks. This may be of the utmost importance.' "'Will you explain?' I said. "'I may never have to explain, or, on the other hand, I may,' she answered. "'I have not really sent for you to point out this advertisement, but in connection with another matter. Now pray, come into the next room with me.' She led me into a prettily and luxuriously furnished boudoir on the same floor. Standing by the hearth was a slender, fair-haired girl, looking very little more than a child. "'May I introduce you to my cousin, Letitia Ransom?' said Miss Guzak eagerly. "'Pray sit down, Letty,' she continued, addressing the girl with a certain asperity. "'Dr. Lonsdale is the man of all others we want. Now, doctor, will you give me your best attention, for I have an extraordinary story to relate.' At Miss Cusack's words, Miss Ransom immediately seated herself. Miss Cusack favored her with a quick glance, and then once more turned to me. "'You are much interested in queer mental phases, are you not?' she said. "'I certainly am,' I replied. "'Well, I should like to ask your opinion with regard to such a will as this.' Once again she unfolded a newspaper, and pointing to a paragraph, handed it to me. I read as follows. "'Extraordinary Terms of a Miser's Will.' Mr. Henry Bovey, who died last week at a small house at Kew, has left one of the most extraordinary wills on record. During his life his eccentricities and miserly habits were well known, but this eclipses them all, by the surprising method in which he has disposed of his property. Mr. Bovey was unmarried, and as far as can be proved, has no near relations in the world. The small balance at his bankers is to be used for defraying fees, duties, and sundry charges, also any existing debts but the main bulk of his securities were recently realized, and the money in sovereigns is locked in a safe in his house. A clause in the will states that there are three claimants to this property, and that the one whose net bodily weight is nearest to the weight of these sovereigns is to become the legatee. The safe containing the property is not to be opened till the three claimants are present. The competition is then to take place, and the winner is at once to remove his fortune. Considerable excitement has been manifested over the affair, the amount of the fortune being unknown. The date of the competition is also kept a close secret for obvious reasons. Well, I said, laying the paper down, whoever this Mr. Bovey was, there is little doubt that he must have been out of his mind. I never heard of a more crazy idea. Nevertheless, it is to be carried out, replied Miss Guzak. Now listen, please, Dr. Lonsdale. This paper is a fortnight old. It is now three weeks since the death of Mr. Bovey. His will has been proved, and the time has come for the carrying out of the competition. I happen to know two of the claimants well, and intend to be present at the ceremony. I did not make any answer, and after a pause she continued. One of the gentlemen who is to be weighed against his own fortune is Edgar Wimburn. He is engaged to my cousin Letitia. If he turns out to be the successful claimant, there is nothing to prevent their marrying at once. If otherwise—here she turned and looked full at Miss Ransom— who stood up, the color coming and going in her cheeks. If otherwise, Mr. Campbell Graham has to be dealt with. Who is he? I asked. Another claimant, a much older man than Edgar. Nay, I must tell you everything. He is a claimant in a double sense, being also a lover, and a very ardent one, of Letitia's. Letty must be saved, she said, looking at me, and I believe I know how to do it. You spoke of three claimants, I interrupted. Who is the third? Oh, he scarcely counts, unless indeed he carries off the prize. He is William Tyndall, Mr. Bovey's servant and retainer. 
"'And when, may I ask, is this momentous competition to take place?' I continued. "'Tomorrow morning, at half-past nine, at Mr. Bovey's house. Will you come with us to-morrow, Dr. Lonsdale, and be present at the weighing?' "'I certainly will,' I answered. "'It will be a novel experience.' "'Very well. Can you be at this house a little before half-past eight, and we will drive straight to Kew?' I promised to do so, and soon after took my leave. The next day I was at Miss Cusack's house in good time. I found waiting for me Miss Cusack herself, Miss Ransom, and Edgar Wimborne. A moment or two later we all found ourselves seated in a large landau, and in less than an hour had reached our destination. We drew up at a small, dilapidated-looking house, standing in a row of prim, suburban villas, and found that Mr. Graham, the lawyer, and the executors had already arrived. The room into which we had been ushered was fitted up as a sort of study. The furniture was very poor and scanty. The carpet was old, and the only ornaments on the walls were a few tattered prints, yellow with age. As soon as ever we came in, Mr. Southby, the lawyer, came forward and spoke. "'We are met here today,' he said, "'as you are all, of course, aware, to carry out the clause of Mr. Bovey's last will and testament. What reasons prompted him to make these extraordinary conditions we do not know. We only know that we are bound to carry them out. In a safe in his bedroom there is, according to his own statement, a large sum of money in gold, which is to be the property of the one of these three gentlemen whose weight shall nearest approach to the weight of the gold. Messrs. Hutchinson and Company have been kind enough to supply one of their latest weighing machines, which has been carefully checked. And now, if you three gentlemen will kindly come with me into the next room, we will begin the business at once. Perhaps you, Dr. Lonsdale, as a medical man, will be kind enough to accompany us. Leaving Miss Cusack and Miss Ransom, we then went into the old man's bedroom, where the three claimants undressed and were carefully weighed. I append their respective weights, which I noted down. Graham, 13 stone, 9 pounds, 6 ounces. Tyndall, 11 stone, 6 pounds, 3 ounces. Wimburn, 12 stone, 11 pounds. Having resumed their attire, Miss Cusack and Miss Ransom were summoned, and the lawyer, drawing out a bunch of keys, went across to the large iron safe which had been built into the wall. We all pressed round him, everyone anxious to get the first glimpse of the old man's hoard. The lawyer turned the key, shot back the lock, and flung open the heavy doors. We found that the safe was literally packed with small canvas bags. Indeed, so full was it that as the door swung open, two of the bags fell to the floor with a heavy, crunching noise. Mr. Southby lifted them up, and then, cutting the strings of one, opened it. It was full of bright sovereigns. An exclamation burst from us all. If all those bags contained gold, there was a fine fortune awaiting the successful candidate. The business was now begun in earnest. The lawyer rapidly extracted bag after bag, untied the string, and shot the contents with a crash into the great copper scale pan, while the attendant kept adding weights to the other side to balance it, calling out the amounts as he did so. No one spoke but our eyes were fixed as if by some strange fascination on the pile of yellow metal that rose higher and higher each moment. As the weight reached one hundred and fifty pounds, I heard the old servant behind me utter a smothered oath. I turned and glanced at him. He was staring at the gold with a fierce expression of disappointment and avarice. He, at any rate, was out of the reckoning, as at eleven stone six, or one hundred and sixty pounds, he could be nowhere near the weight of the sovereigns, there being still eight more bags to untie. The competition, therefore, now lay between Wimburn and Graham. 
The latter's face bore strong marks of the agitation which consumed him. The veins stood out like cords on his forehead, and his lips trembled. It would evidently be a near thing, and the suspense was almost intolerable. The lawyer continued to deliberately add to the pile. As the last bag was shot into the scale, the attendant put four ten-pound weights into the other side. It was too much. The gold rose at once. He took one off, and then the two great pans swayed slowly up and down, finally coming to a dead stop. "'Exactly one hundred and eighty pounds, gentlemen,' he cried, and a shout went up from us all. Wimburn, at twelve stone eleven, or one hundred and seventy-nine pounds, had won. I turned and shook him by the hand. "'I congratulate you most heartily,' I cried. "'Now let us calculate the amount of your fortune.' I took a piece of paper from my pocket and made a rough calculation. Taking fifty-six pounds to the pound avoirdupois, there were at least ten thousand eighty sovereigns in the scale before us. "'I can hardly believe it!' cried Miss Ransom. I saw her gazing down at the gold. Then she looked up into her lover's face. "'Is it true?' she said, panting as she spoke. "'Yes, it is true,' he answered. Then he dropped his voice. "'It removes all difficulties.' I heard him whisper to her. Her eyes filled with tears, and she turned aside to conceal her emotion. "'There is no doubt whatever as to your ownership of this money, Mr. Wimburn,' said the lawyer. "'And now the next thing is to ensure its safe transport to the bank.' As soon as the amount of the gold had been made known, Graham, without bidding good-bye to anyone, abruptly left the room, and I assisted the rest of the men in shoveling the sovereigns into a stout canvas bag which we then lifted and placed in a four-wheeled cab which had arrived for the purpose of conveying the gold to the city. "'Surely someone is going to accompany Mr. Wimburn?' said Miss Cusack at this juncture. "'My dear Edgar,' she continued, "'you are not going to be so mad as to go alone.' To my surprise, Wimburn colored, and then gave a laugh of annoyance. "'What could possibly happen to me?' he said. "'Nobody knows that I am carrying practically my own weight in gold into the city.' "'If Mr. Wimburn wishes, I will go with him,' said Tyndall, now coming forward. The old man had to all appearance got over his disappointment and spoke eagerly. "'The thing is fair and square,' he added. "'I am sorry I did not win, but I'd rather you had it, sir, than Mr. Graham. Yes, that I would, and I congratulate you, sir.' "'Thank you, Tyndall,' replied Wimburn. "'And if you like to come with me, I shall be very glad of your company.' The bag of sovereigns being placed in the cab, Wimburn bade us all a hasty good-bye, told Miss Ransom that he would call to see her at Miss Cusack's house that evening, and, accompanied by Tyndall, started off. As we watched the cab turn the corner, I heard Miss Ransom utter a sigh. "'I do hope it will be all right,' she said, looking at me. "'Don't you think it is a risky thing to drive with so much gold through London?' I laughed in order to reassure her. "'Oh, no, it's perfectly safe,' I answered safer, perhaps, than if the gold were conveyed in a more pretentious vehicle. There is nothing to announce the fact that it is bearing ten thousand and eighty sovereigns to the bank. A moment or two later I left the two ladies and returned to my interrupted duties. The affair of the weighing, the strange clause in the will, Miss Ransom's eager, pathetic face, Wimburn's manifest anxiety, had all impressed me considerably, and I could scarcely get the affair off my mind. I hoped that the young couple would now be married quickly, and I could not help being heartily glad that Graham had lost, for I had by no means taken to his appearance. My work occupied me during the greater part of the afternoon, and I did not get back again to my own house until about six o'clock. 
when i did so i was told to my utter amazement that miss cusack had arrived and was waiting to see me with great impatience i went at once into my consulting room where i found her pacing restlessly up and down what is the matter i asked matter she cried have you not heard why it has been cried in the streets already the money is gone was stolen on the way to london there was a regular highway robbery in the richmond road in broad daylight too the facts are simply these two men in a dog-cart met the cab shot the driver and after a desperate struggle in which edgar wimburn was badly hurt seized the gold and drove off the thing was planned of course planned to a moment but what about tyndall i asked he was probably in the plot all we know is that he has escaped and has not been heard of since but what a daring thing i cried they will be caught of course they cannot have gone far with the money you do not understand their tricks dr lonsdale but i do was her quick answer and i venture to guarantee that if we do not get that money back before the morning edgar wimburn has seen the last of his fortune now i mean to follow up this business all night if necessary i did not reply her dark bright eyes were blazing with excitement and she began to pace up and down you must come with me she continued you promised to help me if the necessity should arise and i will keep my word i answered that is an immense relief she gave a deep sigh as she spoke what about miss ransom i asked oh i have left letty at home she is too excited to be of the slightest use one other question i interrupted and then i am completely at your service you mentioned that wimburn was hurt yes but i believe not seriously he has been taken to the hospital he has already given evidence but it amounts to very little the robbery took place in a lonely part of the road and just for the moment there was no one in sight well i said as she paused you have some scheme in your head have you not i have she answered the fact is this from the very first i feared some such catastrophe as has really taken place i have known mr graham for a long time and distrusted him he has passed for a man of position and means but i believe him to be a mere adventurer there is little doubt that all his future depended on his getting this fortune i saw his face when the scales declared in edgar wimburn's favor but there i must ask you to accompany me to hammersmith immediately on the way i will tell you more we will go in my carriage i said it happens to be at the door we started directly as we had left the more noisy streets miss cusack continued you remember the advertisement i showed you yesterday morning i nodded you naturally could make no sense of it but to me it was fraught with much meaning this is by no means the first advertisement which has appeared under the name of joshua linklater i have observed similar advertisements and all strange to say in connection with founder's work appearing at intervals in the big dailies for the last four or five months but my attention was never specially directed to them until a circumstance occurred of which i am about to tell you what is that i asked three weeks ago a certain investigation took me to hammersmith in order to trace a stolen necklace it was necessary that i should go to a small pawnbroker's shop the man's name was higgins in my queer work dr lonsdale i employ many disguises that night dressed quietly as a domestic servant on our evening out i entered the pawnbroker's i wore a thick veil and a plainly trimmed hat i entered one of the little boxes where one stands to pawn goods and waited for the man to appear for the moment he was engaged and looking through a small window in the door i saw to my astonishment that the pawnbroker was in earnest conversation with no less a person than mr campbell graham this was the last place i should have expected to see mr graham in 
and I immediately used both my eyes and ears. I heard the pawnbroker address him as Linklater. Immediately the memory of the advertisements under that name flashed through my brain. From the attitude of the two men there was little doubt that they were discussing a matter of the utmost importance, and as Mr. Graham, alias Linklater, was leaving the shop, I distinctly overheard the following words. In all probability, Bovey will die tonight. I may or may not be successful, but in order to ensure against loss, we must be prepared. It is not safe for me to come here often. Look out for the advertisement. It will be in the agony column. I naturally thought such words very strange, and when I heard of Mr. Bovey's death and read an account of the queer will, it seemed to me that I began to see daylight. It was also my business to look out for the advertisement, and when I saw it yesterday morning, you may well imagine that my keenest suspicions were aroused. I immediately suspected foul play, but could do nothing except watch and await events. Directly I heard the details of the robbery, I wired to the inspector at Hammersmith to have Higgins' house watched. You remember that Mr. Wimburn left Q in the cab at ten o'clock. The robbery must therefore have taken place some time about ten-twenty. The news reached me shortly after eleven, and my wire was sent off about eleven-fifteen. I mentioned these hours, as much may turn upon them. Just before I came to you, I received a wire from the police station containing startling news. This was sent off about five-thirty. Here, you had better read it. As she spoke, she took a telegram from her pocket and handed it to me. I glanced over the words it contained. Just heard that cart was seen at Higgins this morning. Man and assistant arrested on suspicion. House search. No gold there. Please come down at once. So they have bolted with it, I said. That we shall see, was her reply. Shortly afterwards, we arrived at the police station. The inspector was waiting for us and took us at once into a private room. "'I am glad you were able to come, Miss Cusack,' he said, bowing with great respect to the handsome girl. "'Pray, tell me what you have done,' she answered. "'There is not a moment to spare.' "'When I received your wire,' he said, "'I immediately placed a man on duty to watch Higgins' shop. But evidently before I did this the cart must have arrived and gone. The news with regard to the cart being seen outside Higgins' shop did not reach me till four-thirty. On receiving it, I immediately arrested both Higgins and his assistant, and we searched the house from attic to cellar, but have found no gold whatever. There is little doubt that the pawnbroker received the gold, and has already removed it to another quarter. "'Did you find a furnace in the basement?' suddenly asked Miss Cusack. "'We did,' he replied in some astonishment. "'But why do you ask?' To my surprise, Miss Cusack took out of her pocket the advertisement which she had shown me that morning, and handed it to the inspector. The man read the queer words aloud in a slow and wondering voice. Send more sand and charcoal dust. Core and mold ready for casting. Joshua Linklater. I can make nothing of it, miss, he said, glancing at Miss Cusack. These words seem to me to have something to do with founder's work. I believe they have, was her eager reply. It is also highly probable that they have something to do with the furnace in the basement of Higgins' shop. I do not know what you are talking about, miss, but you have something at the back of your head which does not appear. I have, she answered, and in order to confirm certain suspicions, I wish to search the house. But the place has just been searched by us, was the man's almost testy answer. It is impossible that a mass of gold should be there and be overlooked. Every square inch of space has been accounted for. Who is in the house now? No one. The place is locked up, and one of our men is on duty. What size is the furnace? Unusually large, was the inspector's answer. 
Miss Cusack gave a smile which almost immediately vanished. "'We are wasting time,' she said. "'Let us go there immediately.' "'I must do so, of course, if nothing else will satisfy you, miss. But I assure you—' "'Oh, don't let us waste any more time in arguing,' said Miss Cusack, her impatience now getting the better of her. "'I have a reason for what I do, and must visit the pawnbrokers immediately.' The man hesitated no longer, but took a bunch of keys down from the wall. A blaze of light from a public house guided us to the pawnbrokers, which bore the well-known sign, the three golden balls. These were just visible through the fog above us. The inspector nodded to the man on duty, and unlocking the door we entered a narrow passage into which the swing doors of several smaller compartments opened. The inspector struck a match, and lighting the lantern looked at Miss Cusack as much to say, what do you propose to do now? Take me to the room where the furnace is, said the lady. Come this way, he replied. We turned at once in the direction of the stairs which led to the basement, and entered a room on the right. At the further end was an open range which had evidently been enlarged in order to allow the consumption of a great quantity of fuel, and upon it now stood an iron vessel shaped as a chemist's crucible. Considerable heat still radiated from it. Miss Cusack peered inside. Then she slowly commenced raking out the ashes with an iron rod, examining them closely and turning them over and over. Two or three white fragments she examined with peculiar care. "'One thing at least is abundantly clear,' she said at last. "'Gold has been melted here, and within a very short time. Whether it was the sovereigns or not, we have yet to discover.' "'But surely, Miss Cusack,' said the inspector, "'no one would be rash enough to destroy sovereigns.' "'I am thinking of Joshua Linklater's advertisement,' she said. "'Send more sand and charcoal dust. "'This,' she continued, once more examining the white fragments, "'is undoubtedly sand.' "'She said nothing further, but went back to the ground floor "'and now commenced a systematic search on her own account. "'At last we reached the top floor, "'where the pawnbroker and his assistant had evidently slept. "'Here Miss Cusack walked at once to the window and flung it open.' She gazed out for a minute, and then turned to face us. Her eyes looked brighter than ever, and a certain smile played about her face. "'Well, miss,' said the police inspector, "'we have now searched the whole house, and I hope you are satisfied.' "'I am,' she replied. "'The gold is not here, miss.' "'We will see,' she said. As she spoke, she turned once more, and bent slightly out, as if to look down through the murky air at the street below. The inspector gave an impatient exclamation. "'If you have quite finished, miss, we must return to the station,' he said. "'I am expecting some men from Scotland Yard to go into this affair.' "'I do not think they will have much to do,' she answered, "'except, indeed, to arrest the criminal.' As she spoke, she leant a little further out of the window, and then, withdrawing her head, said quietly, "'Yes, we may as well go back now. I have quite finished. Things are exactly as I expected to find them. We can take the gold away with us.' Both the inspector and I stared at her in utter amazement. "'What do you mean, Miss Cusack?' I cried. "'What I say,' she answered. And now she gave a light laugh. "'The gold is here, close to us. We have only to take it away. Come,' she added. "'Look out, both of you. Why, you are both gazing at it.' I glanced round in utter astonishment. My expression of face was reproduced in that of the inspector's. "'Look,' she said. "'What do you call that?' As she spoke, she pointed to the sign that hung outside, the sign of the three balls. "'Lean out and feel that lower ball,' she said to the inspector. He stretched out his arm, and as his fingers touched it, he 
he started back why it is hot he said what in the world does it mean it means the lost gold replied miss Gusack. it has been cast as that ball i said that the advertisement would give me the necessary clue and it has done so yes the lost fortune is hanging outside the house the gold was melted in the crucible downstairs and cast as this ball between twelve o'clock and four thirty today remember it was after four thirty you arrested the pawnbroker and his assistant to verify her extraordinary words was the work of a few moments owing to its great weight the inspector and i had some difficulty in detaching the ball from its hook at the same time we noticed that a very strong stay in the shape of an iron wire rope had been attached to the iron frame from which the three balls hung you will find i am sure said miss cusack that this ball is not of solid gold if it were it would not be the size of the other two balls it has probably been cast round a centre of plaster of paris to give it the same size as the others this explains the advertisement with regard to the charcoal and sand a ball of that size in pure gold would weigh nearly three hundred pounds or twenty stone well said the inspector of all the curious devices that i have ever seen or heard of this beats the lot but what did they do with the real ball they must have put it somewhere they burnt it in the furnace of course she answered these balls as you know are only wood covered with gold paint yes it was a very clever idea worthy of the brain of mr graham and it might have hung there for weeks and been seen by thousands passing daily till mr higgins was released from imprisonment as nothing whatever could be proved against him owing to miss cusack's testimony graham was arrested that night and finding that circumstances were dead against him he confessed the whole for long years he was one of a gang of coiners but managed to pass as a gentleman of position he knew old bovey well and had heard him speak of the curious will he had made knowing of this he determined at any risk to secure the fortune intending when he had obtained it to immediately leave the country he had discovered the exact amount of the money which he would leave behind him and had gone carefully into the weight which such a number of sovereigns would make he knew at once that tyndall would be out of the reckoning and that the competition would really be between himself and wimburn to provide against the contingency of wimburn's being the lucky man he had planned the robbery the gold was to be melted and made into a real golden ball which was to hang over the pawn-shop until suspicion had died away. End of Mr. Bovey's Unexpected Will by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace